Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman. I'm joined this week by Owen Hughes. Hello. And nobody else. Just the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Well, you're not going to duet it with me. No. It's just going to, no, just no. leave it hanging. I don't sing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just us two. What are we talking about though, Steve? What have we got? We've got a review of Tom Cruise's latest film and the first in the Dark Universe. Dark Universe Monsters yeah. series of films. Yeah, Universal are having a go at making their own movie universe, which I think they sort of had, like, decades ago anyway. Yeah. If you think about it, they had, like, um, you know, the mu- they had the, the original The Mummy. But it, um, wasn't, it wasn't tied in, was it? It wasn't... Because I'm guessing with this shared universe, they're looking to tie all the movies together in some kind of Avengers... Thing. I think they kind they kind of did. I can't remember what it was exactly, but I think they had Abbott and Costello, and they used to have films where they would, you know, go between different monsters. So they'd have a film with, you know, Dracula, which would be Bela Lugosi. Um, they'd have films with Frankenstein, which would be Boris Karloff. You know, that kind of thing. Lon Chaney Jr. for whatever character he was playing at the time. Wolfman, I think it was. Because I think he did the Phantom of the Opera before that. Because that was a silent film. Yeah, but you know, all these characters, they were linked basically by Abbott and Costello. Yeah. But So they kind of they kind of were already a movie universe. But not like they're trying to do now with movie star Tom Cruise at the front and centre of it. No, but anyway, we'll be talking about... All of that later. Uh, we've got watch what you've been watching. Um, we talk about some of the other films we've seen. We've this changed week. the name of it to what you've yeah. been watching. Yes. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> yes. What we've been watching. Mm. Uh, not what you've been watching because we don't actually care what the listeners have been watching. Well, it just like, if we ask them what they've been watching, what have you been watching, listeners? I mean, it's just def- deafening silence because mm. that's how podcasts work. Yes, and we have got the news, which we'll start off with, but no quiz this week because it's just me and Owen, and so it's not really workable to do a quiz. Um, so Owen, uh, being 2-0 down, staves off watching something terrible for another week. I haven't got anything to, to worry about this week. No. Nice not and yet. relaxed. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the major news story, uh, and the only one we could really find worth covering um, outside of failed critics shared universe this week was the the sad passing of batman uh, adam west mm, adam we as we yes, called him adam we yeah because he's kind of he, for a lot of people he is batman i think he also has like this cult following for his role as the mayor in uh family guy yes playing a, a, a very d- different version of himself <laughs> But I think it shows the sense of humour that he had. But, I mean, obviously he had a sense of humour. Yeah. Because the, the 60s Batman, which he only did for two years as well, remember? I mean, that was a very short-lived show. Um, he gained, like, popularity for that. And that is a comedy. He plays it very straight. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's any less funny. No. Um, and, you know, if you've ever seen the, the movie, what I mean, that's just... Uh, they even, like... It's so influential. If you watch The Dark Knight Rises, the Christian Bale movie, at yeah. the end of that, he's trying to get rid of a bum, which, you know, is a callback to the original Batman movie with Adam West, where some days you just can't get rid of a bum. 
Well, it's, no, very much so. Yeah, it stayed. It stayed so so prominently um, for like fifty years or more. Yeah. Um, which is credit, I think, to to Adam West and his portrayal of uh, the caped crusader. I think everyone must think of if, of Adam West as Batman and as the perhaps not, not people more modern, you know, in the, from this generation, any, anything before this generation surely thinks of Adam West as Batman and that being the Batman with the kind of campy, bright suit and um, the brightly coloured Robin and the, the silly gadgets and yeah, 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 it all being yeah. very over the top, yeah, all being very cartoonish, which is probably quite apt seeing it is, is, is from a cartoon and a, a comic, exactly. It's very much like the um old comics were, you know, they were kind of campy, they were very moralistic and all about teaching yeah. kids how to be good people, you know, they were. They're not like now where you get people who've grown up on the comics and not just grown up on them, but grew up with them. And so, you know, as they started to get older, the comics started to get darker and more mature. You know, back then, it was very rare for uh, for a, a comic strip like Batman to be yeah. the Dark Knight, if you know what I mean. He, he was... He was uh, you know his costume had eyebrows on it he he was uh kind of fun and all about teaching robin how to be a better boy and stuff like that so you know he suited the time it lasted because uh the humor in it was quite universal quite broad as well um which helps because it just kind of it makes it a little bit timeless you know what what's funny in terms of someone being thwacked or thwomped or whatever the the big pop art style you know phrases that, that that shot up on screen whenever someone was hit over the head with a fish or whatever you know the, 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 that kind of slapstick humor um it translates it's universal so yeah so it's it's just, it's a shame he's is is past but like I say, I think whether whether people remember him for Batman, whether some people remember him for his sort of voiceover work and his caricature in uh, in Family Guy or whatever it is, um, he, he's sort of a, one of those comedy geniuses that will be remembered long after he's dead anyway. So yeah, uh, in the in his Batman TV show, did did any of the other like the Justice League? Did any of those ever cross over into it? No, I don't think it was... Well, I mean, I haven't seen them all. I've only really seen the movie and I watched a few of the episodes. But um, from what I gather, it was Batman and Robin. I don't think there was even Batgirl then. Um, no, I know Catwoman was in it and obviously all the, the major yeah. bad guys and Commissioner Gordon and everything. But um, yeah, I Well, just think... Cat, Catwoman was in it as, as a villain. Yeah. You know, she was a, a criminal. Um a kind of femme fatale in a way because she was quite alluring, but actually, you know, a cat yeah. burglar, hence the name. Um, so. Also worth saying that way back when, before this obviously happened, James Diamond uh, had written a, an excellent piece on Adam West and his Batman for the uh, Fail Critics website. So it's worth going over there and checking that out for a, for a good tribute of the man. What we've been watching now, we have a look at some of the non-new releases we've seen this week. Owen, why don't you start us off? I believe we're going to review two films each this week because it's just the two of us and to give you something to listen to. Yeah, there's two of us. We're going to do two films. That's, um, yeah. (laughs) Basically, um, what happened was uh, I talked to somebody about some films that were on Netflix and one of those, I think it was when I reviewed uh, War Machine, uh, the, the film with Brad Pitt in it. Um, and somebody sa- suggested that I try I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which is a Netflix original movie. Which is a sentence and, I say most days. <laughs> well, I, I skipped over this, not knowing anything about it. 
And I guess it's it's bad because it's, you know, judging a film by its its title. But I literally thought, I don't want to watch a film with that title. I think that's an awful movie name. It is. I don't feel it's home this world anymore. It's just dreadful, isn't it? It is. It's so For, fucking twee and awful. And pretentious and yeah. up itself. You just think you just think I could tell what this film's going to be about. There's going to be some absolute knob who is a bit underachieving but thinks he's better than everyone. That's pretty close. That's pretty close. Um, Essentially, what? me. <laughs> Failed critics. The movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I I gave it a go based on this guy's recommendation, uh, and also because I saw that it was directed by Macon Blair who uh, hopefully will sound familiar to people who've been listening to this podcast for a long time, because Macon Blair is one of the actors in Green Room, which we uh, reviewed a few times, was in our top 10 films of the year last year. Uh, He's also the star of Blue Ruin. Both of those are films by Jeremy Saulnier, Saulnier, Saulnier. Whatever, whatever his name is pronounced as. Him, the guy who did Green Room and Blue Ruin. Um, but in in this, uh, Macon Blair has written and directed it. So he's not just featured in it. And in fact, he only has a kind of beefed up cameo in this. He stays very much behind the camera. But it still feels very much like it could have been a Jeremy Sonier film. Um, and I think it, it gets compared. I, I had a quick look at some reviews as well. Um, obviously before before watching it to just check it out a bit more. It, a lot of people were comparing it to Blue Ruin in terms of the way it felt um, and kind of looked as well. It has that similar visual style to it. But yeah, like I say, I ignored, I ignored it because of its title. Um, but apparently it won the US Grand Jury Prize for um, dramatic films at Sundance earlier this year. So it had a bit of weight behind it. Uh, which is strange that not more, many more people are talking about it, I think. Perhaps it is just like me and lots of people see that title and just go, nope, not adding that one to the watch list. I don't care about your 96% thumbs up, skipping that one. But it's worth going It's worth going back to. So basically what happens in it is a character called Ruth, who's played by Melanie Linsky, who I recognised by face, but... It took me a little while to figure out. It's because she was Rose in Two and a Half Men, if you ever right. watched that. Yeah, she's in this. She actually gives a really good performance. I mean, I don't think I could comment one way or the other about what she did in Two and a Half Men. But in, in this, she's great. She's really convincing in the role. And she's very likeable as well, which helps because it's a character who you otherwise would think like you assumed straight away, Steve, that she's just some, you know, moaning, you know, one of these first world problems kind of people. But she's actually quite likable. She's slightly unhinged as well, which is hinted at being due to her lack of medication. Because the the kind of the key, the, the key thing in the plot is she's burglarized. Her house is um, broken into, and she's a, she's a, a nursing assistant, I think, or care care assistant or something. So her house is burglarized while she's at work. People steal, someone steals her laptop, they steal her silverware, um, and they steal her medication as well. She reports it to the police. The police make a note of it, say, well, you've, you've left your back door open, unlocked, so, you know report it to your insurance and we'll help if we can. But she wants the police to go out and actually find the criminals. And of course the police are like, well, no, it's a standard house burglary. There's not much else they can do. So she takes it upon herself to enlist the help of a weird ninja obsessed kind of uh, loserish neighbor, Tony, who is played by Elijah Wood. And they um, take it upon themselves to go out and try and find the laptop, which they do. And in finding the laptop, that leads them onto finding her silverware, which then leads her on to finding the people who committed the burglary, 
And it turns out they're not very nice people who'd have thunk it. So I kind of liked how it was quite episodic, actually. Um, obviously, the thing that ties it all together is the burglary, but it's just like they're quite quirky characters, but not quirky in an annoying way. They're quirky in a kind of uh, comedic fashion that, that quite suits the tone of the film. Uh, it's basically a series of escapades that which leads to bigger and bigger um, ordeals. The whole thing just keeps escalating. Like, it starts off with things like uh, Macon Blair when he makes his cameo in the film. It's when Ruth is um, reading a book at a bar. She's had a shit day. She's at the bar. She's reading a book, having a glass of wine. He comes over and starts chatting to her. And they get on quite well. And then he sort of starts talking about the book that she's reading. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happens. Isn't this really cool? And then he just kind of spoils the ending for her and saunters off like an arsehole. Like casually just drops into the, the conversation, something that would be akin to like, oh, yeah. And then it turns out, you know, Darth Vader's Luke Skywalker's dad and then just kind of leaves it at that. So he's a proper arsehole in it, but it doesn't mean to be. And then you have things like it escalates to, well, eventually she has a confrontation with the people who stole her shit and they are all arseholes. And so there's a quote in the film where Ruth says, um, that she doesn't want to pay off. She doesn't want to be paid off by the father of the guy that robbed her place. And he says, well, I'm confused. What do you want? And she just says, for people not to be assholes." And I think that's kind of the, the theme that runs through the film. I mean, is she naive? Or is it kind of like a noble quest that she's on to just, 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 to, just to be in a world where people aren't assholes to each other? Um... So that's kind of, that kind of is what the film is about. It's like, are people assholes? Or is it just that she's having a shit day and she's just had the wrong thing happen to her at the wrong point in her life? Yeah. Kind of thing. But it's quite funny. Um, it's a lot gorier than I expected it to be. Like, I should have kind of expected that because both Blue Ruin and Green Room were quite um, brutal, particularly Green Room. That just gets really gory at one point. But I think because it was Macon Blair and not Jeremy Sonnier, I thought, and the way that the film started has just been quite funny. I thought maybe, maybe it's not going that way. And then it totally does. And it comes out in that way. It's very blackly comic. The final act of this film is great. It's not necessarily hinged on twists either, but like a succession of like frantic, off kilter story beats. Uh, and stuff like uh, and you don't know whether things that are happening are kind of actually happening or whether everything's just a little bit like because because the film is seen through Ruth she's the protagonist you don't know how reliable she is because she's off her medication as it as the film goes so things all seem a little bit weird anyway um and everything that happens in the story kind of falls into place rather conveniently around her you know, like how things start to lead into each other um, but again, I think that that works quite well to mirror Ruth as a character. Um, and, and because Melanie Linsky plays the character really well, it just works. So, yeah, so I can see where the comparisons to Blue Ruin come from because it's, it is kind of similar. Um, and I know lots of people loved Blue Ruin, Blue Ruin but um, I think I think I do prefer this. Um, the, I think probably because the comedy works better for me in this and probably because I think that the world around Ruth is so much more suited to that character, the way that they, they kind of fit each other. So, yeah. So I'd recommend people give it a go. Don't be put off by the awful title. It's a Netflix original, really good quality, um, and definitely definitely worth adding to the to the watch list. The, I'm sure, ever-growing watch list. And what was, the, what was that film again? That was, I don't want... Uh, I keep saying I don't want to live in this world anymore. That's the quote from Futurama, isn't it? It's not that. It's, I don't feel at home in this world okay. anymore. Um, for my, the first one I'm going to review out of the two I've seen, do you want me to go for the one I liked or the one I didn't like? Do the one you liked first. Okay. So one I liked was uh, an Irish film from last year called The Young Offenders. Uh, loosely based around some real events where a, uh, a, a, a smuggler's ship sank or, or, uh, off the coast of Ireland and um, 
spilt a record, uh, you know, a monumental haul of cocaine over the side. Um, but the, the film is only loosely based around that. It's essentially uh, these two um, teenagers, 15-year-olds, um, both kind of layabouts, both don't have much going for them. One of them involves in petty crime, mostly stealing bicycles. But they're both fed up with their lives and the way they're, they're panning out. Um, and the film does kind of reveal why uh, for both of them. And you kind of think, okay, fair enough. And basically, so they see this um, this incident about the cocaine being being lost at sea uh, or off just off the coast. Um, and they see on the news stories it's all washing up on the shore and the police are trying to get hold of it. But some people are actually trying to get hold of it themselves to, to sell illegally, obviously. And each bale... Uh, is worth seven million euros. Mm. So they plan to to cycle down to where it is to steal one to make themselves some money to give themselves a better life. Um, but at the same time, they are pursued by a policeman who not, doesn't know that they're going out that way to do this. He is a policeman who is a bike enthusiast, likes his cycling, and is fed up with all the bikes being stolen in his area, and so chases them because of that. Um it is. It is played as a comedy. It is. It is quite funny. The, the two. One thing I couldn't quite get my head around was the two. The two central characters are meant to be fifteen-year-olds. They don't look anything like fifteen-year-olds. They look more <laughs> like eighteen, nineteen, even though they are shown as still being at school. Like they're, they've got enough facial hair to be a nineteen-year-old, but not a fifteen-year-old. It just doesn't. You know, they could have made him eighteen, nineteen. It wouldn't really have changed the film at all. But I like to, to call that American children. Yeah. Like in American films where they're all like built to fuck and well, yeah, they're not. They're like, not built. It's not like the people playing Dawson, Dawson in Dawson's Creek and all that. It yeah, was, it, but they do look older than what they should be. But that's by the by, really doesn't ruin the film. Or um, it is. It is funny in places. The relationship between the two main characters is quite good. They get on. You know, they work quite well together as a as a partnership. Um, the the relationship one of them has with his mum is is quite funny, but also quite the basically they're both from single parent families. One has a has a dad, the other has a mum, and the relationship. So the the, the one who's who's just got his mum, he works for her on her fish store in the market as well as being at school. But his mum doesn't think a great deal of him, gives him a lot of grief a lot of the time, gives him a hard time quite a lot of the time. Quite obviously, he doesn't care about him, but just gives him a hard time pretty relentlessly um the other one his dad uh he's his dad is an alcoholic drinks all the time the lad is saving whatever money he gets from whatever means he gets money to try and build a better life for himself but his dad just steals it all off of him to go and spend it on alcohol so you can see why they're both kind of looking for for better things Mm -hmm. it's a a bit of an adventure movie they obviously go off on this adventure they get into scrapes they annoy the wrong people upset the wrong people um they end up losing the cocaine in quite silly circumstances um yeah it's it's funny there's i wouldn't say dark moments but some more serious moments and more emotion not emotional but you know more serious moments in there that that play out quite well and don't jar against the rest of the film um pretty much all the central characters are, are really some really good performances from some people that i've never heard of and don't even have wikipedia entries so i couldn't tell you i couldn't tell you anything about them <laughs> they're if I wanted that to. obscure yeah i couldn't tell you anything about them if i wanted to um yeah it's it's a really nice film it concludes itself in, in a good way um and yeah, I would. I it's on Netflix, and I would really recommend watching it for for anyone. If they're looking for kind of a light hearted, um, mm. not a family film by any means, but more of a light hearted, upbeat kind of film to watch. It's an Irish film, isn't it? Yes. So it's yeah. I think I've heard of it before. Yeah. I think so. Lots of people. It's kind of gathering a little cult following. It seems to be from what I've read on it, and it's. It's won some awards at different um, film and comedy film festivals. Yeah, so it's it's on Netflix, like I said, definitely worth watching. The Young Offenders, is it? Yes, The Young Offenders. What's the next film you're watching, reviewing? Well, I kind of feel like 
I should talk about this film because I've just spent like a, a couple days researching it because as I've mentioned a couple times I've had a, I've been doing a film studies module at university this term and earlier today I had my exam so that's it's over and done with I've completed a film studies module hooray but um one of those films that I spent a couple days researching uh, was Blade Runner uh, which is Ridley Scott's film from 1982. Now, I wasn't actually going to talk about it because because I've just spent so long looking into it that I just feel like I'm done with it. But we were talking about this before we started, and Blade Runner 2049 is coming out in October, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, which is Denis, Denis Villeneuve. We're never going to get his name right. Denis Villeneuve, him, the guy. Uh, he's directing the sequel and I kind of feel like I had a chat with um the mighty blackout on Twitter about this when we kind of bumped into each other outside of uh, the cinema in Didcot um a few weeks back and we were talking about Blade Runner 2049 what is the point in this film yeah what is the what is the rationale for this there is no there is no further story that he's telling there is no precisely the film concludes well, I the the ending so, of Blade Runner does leave it up to your own interpretation on a few things. But does does it? Because this is what okay. So I, th- I can see what you mean because there's there's two different versions of Blade Runner, I think. Um, pro- like they both are broadly similar. You've got the theatrical cut, yeah, which plays everything more like a film noir. Everything from, but they're both kind of film noir. But like it plays everything from the narration which is Harrison Ford as uh, Deckard, a Blade Runner, whose job is to retire replicants, which are basically androids. And by retire, we, of course, mean go and kill. But they use, like, euphemistic terms to... Yeah, basically, he's a murderer, but they don't want to call him that. So he's a, 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 he retires them. Um, but in the theatrical version, what they, they leave out a very crucial scene which is where, um, because it's been a few years since you've seen this, isn't it? Yeah. Steve? Def- yeah. yeah. So there's a scene that's not in the theatrical version, but is in the final cut, which was released in 97, which I think is the definitive version of the film now. Anyway, not the theatrical version. Um, the, film, the, the scene that's missing in the theatrical version is where Deckard kind of daydreams about a unicorn. And it's very divisive amongst people because people who see it in the final cut, this like where he's just sitting at his desk and he's he's obviously not asleep, but he is just fantasizing and thinking about something, and he happens to be thinking about a unicorn. Everyone's like, it, for some people, they just hate that scene because it seems a little bit out of keeping with everything else in this like grim, industrialized, dystopian future. For him to sit there on his desk and think about a unicorn could mean lots of different things, of course. Um, but what I think it actually means um, is that he's not actually a human. He's an android or a replicant. I think it's quite definitive in that what happens is you find out about the, the replicants. Their memories are implanted. Like sometimes they think they've had pre... Like Rachel is the primary example in this film where she thinks that she's experienced this life as a, a child but actually we find out those memories were just implanted in her she never did any of the things that she thought that she thought she did um and so what we find out with Deckard is he dreams about a unicorn and at the end gaff uh, he, he kind of makes an allusion to the fact that you know who is real we don't really know who you know what is life anyway right Deckard finds an origami unicorn, which suggests, like at his apartment, which suggests that Gaff has left him a, an origami unicorn because Gaff knows what Deckard's dreams are. And the only way he would know what Deckard dreams about is if he'd implanted those memories in him. So I think that pretty much says, boom, there you go. In the final cut, we know Harrison Ford is a replicant. It's, it's there. It's kind of made obvious. So... To then say, okay, Blade Runner 2049, uh, what, what are we doing back in this world again? 
Yeah. It said everything it needed to say about like human identity. It says everything it needs to say um, uh, about what life is. Everything from the fact that, okay, this is like, I'm not going to go fully into all this academic shit that I've been studying recently. But stuff like Descartes is it's similar to Descartes. Right, Descartes is cogito ergo sum, you know. Um, I think, therefore, I am. So he's alive because he thinks so, he's et cetera, et cetera. So or everything that it needs to say about what makes a person alive has been said and done. It's, it, it's finished. Finito. The end is conclusive and it's over. So I can only think that... Because I, I know that the, the books had sequel books, you know, do I, uh, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep uh, had follow-up books, which I've never read, and I've heard that they're not great anyway. Um, but I have read the original. Um, I can only think that Blade Runner 2049 is just a, a crime thriller, you know? I mean, I don't even think it's going to be as um, kind of, like a hybrid of different genres, even so much as Blade Runner was with noir and yeah. and and sci-fi. It kind of was the first to smush these together. And there weren't really sci-fis like Blade Runner before Blade Runner. You had, the, you had a few, but there weren't any that were quite as big in scope and what they were dealing with. No. You know? Um, so I just, I just don't... I, I just don't expect much from Blade Runner 2049. I don't see what it's going to do, and I, I'm not excited for it. I, I mean, I like Dennis Villeneuve's other films. I like uh, Ryan Gosling, for example. Ryan Gosling's in it. Jared Leto, I'm hearing lots of good things about. Um, Batista is in it as well, for some reason. Um, playing probably like a Terminator android type character. But even like Ryan Gosling's look, if you look at the posters, he's, his look is that he is a... Blade Runner, very similar to Harrison Ford. Now, if Harrison Ford was a Blade Runner, and a rep, well, he was a Blade Runner, but if Harrison Ford was a replicant, and the guy we saw at the start of the film, whose name has just escaped me, uh, who is also a Blade Runner, he looks very similar to Harrison Ford as well. So we already know, basically, Ryan Gosling is a replicant. So kind of, if the film is basically waiting to reveal that Ryan Gosling is a replicant... I'm going to be doubly pissed at mm. it. I mean, it's not much of a review and it's more of a like meandering thought. Uh, so I apologize for that. But I just, I just don't, I don't expect much from Blade Runner 2049 yeah. at all. Mm. But Blade Runner, the final cut is still fantastic. I watched the, the theatrical cut and the final cut. Um, if you're going to watch one or the other, Blade Runner, the final cut is the one to watch. It's, it's such an improvement and it was already good to begin with. Okay, well, that was. Uh, Blade Runner, both the both cuts of that film. The film I watched I didn't get on too well with was called uh, The White King. Now, described on um, uh, Netflix where I watched it and on Wikipedia, where I had a quick read-up of it beforehand, it's described as a uh, sci-fi drama set in a dystopian future, which is why I probably was attracted to it. There ain't nothing sci-fi about it. <laughs> Some of the technology you see is slightly more futuristic than perhaps what things are now, but that's it. Um, essentially, it's set in uh, say the dystopian future where there's a kind of totalitarian dictatorship ruling things. It's never made clear where it is in the world. You can't make it out from the accents, and um, you don't know how things got uh, to the situation they're in. Uh, it starts off with a family um, playing down near a lake, having fun. Um, it's quickly revealed the dad is an enemy of the state and is taken away by the powers that be. It's centred around a 12-year-old boy called uh, Jata. And, yeah, it, that kind of the, the, the environment, it kind of looks like one of the... Um, districts in the Hunger Games, I suppose. The, the, okay. The, the, you know, the setting is kind of looks like one of the districts that um, Jennifer Lawrence's character in the Hunger Games is from originally. And the tiny, tiny bits you do get 
of the of the, seeing where the, the the powers that be the the upper class live isn't as extravagant as what it is in the Hunger Games by any means, but they obviously do have more and better housing, more lavish lifestyle, etc. The film doesn't really decide on what plot it wants to pick up on. It doesn't decide whether it wants to focus on this kid trying to find this treasure from the White King. The White King is basically this huge statue of a of a worker um, that oversees this town, this huge statue on a hill. Um, and so, you know, and his dad comes up with this story that he's the White King has got this treasure in the cave and he's looking over it and there's only one small one. So he's looking over the entrance to it. But really, it's just a big propaganda statue. Um, the, or, or whether he's trying to, to find his dad or build a better relationship with his mum or forge some kind of relationship with his grandparents who um, his granddad is actually the, the, the general in this army. So he's uh, at odds to his the child's mum and dad. And, but it just never really decides what it wants to do with the plot. And then nothing really happens. Hmm. It just just plods along without anything really happening. What does happen makes little sense. So the, the, the lad is 12 and there's some older kids in this who are sort of 15, 16. And they have a couple of scrapes with them. But you think, well, there's this totalitarian government that's got their eyes on everyone. But at some point in this film, the, the, these four 12-year-olds and four, like, 16-year-olds have this big fight and they're stabbing each other, firing flaming bows and arrows at each other, and you're thinking, well, this isn't very realistic because surely this government would be cracking down and know what's going on. There's cameras everywhere watching people. No one's asking questions about why some 12-year-old's been lumped around the head of a bit of wood repeatedly or why some 16-year-old's been stabbed by a 12-year-old. It just... You know, some of it doesn't make sense. It's based on a book, and I have no idea if the book is any good it's, or not. But for me, this film doesn't work at all. Um, That's a shame. Yeah, it is, because it's, there's some good ideas, and I don't know if the ideas are pulled off well in the book. But it just, yeah, it's just kind of... Not, it goes on for... It's only sort of an hour and a half. In an hour and a half, nothing really happens. I don't feel like any of the characters develop. I don't learn anything. I don't find out anything about this this totalitarian dictatorship. I don't find anything about the people. The people don't revolt. The, hmm. no, none of the older kids kind of get their comeuppance. He doesn't really find any treasure. Nothing, nothing happens. It just seems hmm. like a whole wasted exercise. I had I had seen this on Netflix, yeah, um, and it's on it is on my list as well, but I might remove it then based on that. I, I, I mean, you might take some, to waste an hour and a half on it. You might take something completely different from it than what I did, but I I won't be watching it again. Put it that way, and I wouldn't be inclined to watch if I saw something coming up as made by the makers of the White King. I'd be probably skipping it on by. <laughs> oh. So. And this this is usually your bag, isn't it? Sort of dystopian. Oh yeah, and anything en- anything like. end of the world. Hmm. Probably because I think I thrive in that kind of environment. Do you reckon? Yeah, level the playing field for me, and I'll be all right. Okay, so it it's happened. The comet has hit. Yeah, and now everyone's had their like party before the comet hit the world and celebrated. Like this is the end. Hello, nice to meet you. Let's go and have an orgy. That kind of thing's all out of the way. There's no, it's just you. As far as you know, maybe someone else. You've got no way of contacting them. What? You, what's your first port of call? The cliff. The cliff. Yeah. What? Just head to the cliff. Yeah. Or go after. Jump, the cliff if I'm the only one left, it? I'm going over the edge. If it's me and other people, fine. Mm-hmm. Well, there might be other people. So, the news report before the comet hit said there may be other people alive. I just get get on mooching about. Just get on. Yeah. Zombie yeah. apocalypse has got proper plan for. What's the plan for? Are you are you going to reveal your zombie plan, or are you scared of airing it and people stealing it? No, just basically. Because yours is get to a castle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it's if it's in the summertime, if it's in the winter, 
there's a bit of a mm-hmm. problem with that because it's, it's a ruined castle, right. but it's on like a big kind of hill mound thing, which just only supports the castle. So in the summer, it's fine because you can sleep outdoors and you can go and get some tents and build up some kind of shelter and warmth. But if it happens in the winter, it's going to be a bit of a pain in the ass. You're fucked. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and I don't think there's going to be many of them around here because everyone, we're on a peninsula, so everyone's going to leave. They're not going to come here. They're going to go away. Mm. So, just, just you know, build a block up, up the road going into the town. You're all right. Nice. Yeah. What would you do? I had to plan for this before. Like, no, not a real plan, but like, I thought there's a there's a house by me which is completely walled off. Like, they've got a gate, but it's a big, thick wooden gate. And all around it is like stone walls, which they're about sort of seven, eight foot high. So I thought, well, you just get in there and then just take that. That's quite going to be quite easy to defend. What if they don't you let know? you in? That's what the, the the problem is. What if the people in there also survive and they don't want me to come in? Yeah. Then you get into this whole sort of Walking Dead fear of the Walking Dead. I mean, what sort of what scenario. what skills can you offer them as a as a kind of media student? I'm a de- I can write. I can write pretty well. I can um, report on what's going on. Around. I don't know. I haven't got any practical skills yeah. to offer whatsoever. You know, I can I can be their light bulb changer. I can change a light bulb pretty well. Mm, I'm sure they can do that themselves. Well, oh, see, then you have to sort of convince them that you can do it. They need you. Yeah. They need me as the light bulb changer. Mm. You know, what if they go to change a light bulb and it cracks and then they cut themselves? I mean, it, you've got to think about these things. There's no doctors around. They could get infected. And then they're going to burn through all their antibiotics and all their first aid kit. Exactly. We won't, the best thing they can do is to employ me to come in and change their light bulbs. Save them, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yes, I mean, that, that was the White King. Sort of. Time to review uh, the big new release this week, which is The Mummy, um, starring Tom Cruise, and is the first film in this, as we mentioned earlier, Dark Universe shared monsters universe thing that's happening. <laughs> um, yeah, the universal dark universe. Yeah. Um, um, so, so Universal, of course, the studio. Behind yes, it. and yeah. they've they're, so they're making films, um, the Mummy with with Van Helsing, with vampires, with werewolves, with um, I believe the Hunchback of Notre Dame's going to be in one, the Phantom of the Opera, all these kind of classic movie monsters, Doctor Jekyll and Hyde, who was actually in this film as Russell Crowe, uh, played by Russell Crowe. Uh, I haven't got a great deal to say about it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is just um, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tom Tom Cruise was was okay. He's his usual self. I feel I genuinely think he puts hundred and ten percent effort into every film that he makes. Uh, he really does try and put in a good performance. Um, but although he had to, he was playing it very oddly, I thought. Did you not think he was a bit strange? Um, like he was in a completely different movie to some people, but like at one at certain points, like there's a, the scene that's in the trailer, right, where he's in the plane, and the yeah. plane's going down, and he's doing his usual Tom Cruise does the stunts thing, where he's being he's floating around the plane as it's going down, bashing into walls and stuff, and you think, okay, this is typical Tom Cruise. <laughs> this is Tom Cruise saying, look how much of an action star I am, even though I'm fifty plus, I'm still an action star. Uh, and then, then when he was playing some of the more comedic parts in the film, I just thought he was a bit weird. Like, I know he's Tom Cruise and he's a bit weird anyway, but I just thought he was just a bit strange. It wasn't a good acting performance by... It was like the opposite of a good acting performance. Yeah. But, you know, he did all the Tom Cruise bits well. You know, he did the action scenes well. He did the joking around with his buddy. You know, which was Jake Johnson in this kind of well. This is not a good film, is it? It's n- and you not think a and good you think film. all right, there's going to be different directors and different producers and different actors attached to all these different films. But why have they kind of gone all out and doing this shared universe of Avengers style Marvel thing now without really knowing how well these films are going to? You know, was was ever anyone clamoring for? A Bride of Frank, you know, a Franken, new Frankenstein film. Was anyone really pushing for another 
Phantom of the Opera film, like six years down the line from this, or? Well, I mean, it's strange, isn't it? Because we we now associate them because of the impact that like Marvel have had, because the way that DC have followed suit. It's it can't just be a studio and their product. It's a universe. All of these things have to be shared. We have to have this interconnected thing. So because they've got the mummy and in the mummy, they've put in Russell Crowe as um, Dr. Jekyll, as we mentioned, then therefore it's got to have like an intertwining, interconnected, shared universe space where all these monsters can just exist. And oh, this film's going to impact on the next film. It seems very much like it's a ploy to get people to go back and watch the next one, regardless of how shit they accidentally make each entry, you know, just because the mummy is not done particularly well. But you've still got to come and see Bride of Frankenstein because, you know, it's going to have the same characters and it'll continue the story. It's just a marketing gimmick now, Uh, which is perhaps a little bit of what the other shared universe uh, franchises have become anyway. But like this has like real, I, I mean, the fact they're doing a Creature from the Black Lagoon film is quite appealing to me. The fact they're doing a new Wolfman film is quite appealing to me. The fact that they're doing even The Mummy and Dracula and, um, you know, Invisible Man and all these different things. I think, yeah, there's there's movies to be done in this. You you know, there are, there are new stories that you can tell or tell old stories in a slightly updated contemporary way. You don't necessarily have to make it a massive shared universe. Look at what... Um, Hammer are doing, you know, just because they've brought back uh, the woman in... Well, they've remade the woman in black, haven't they? It doesn't mean that the woman in black has to share a universe with all of their other, you know, franchises, their rebooted. You don't have to have something that happens in The Quiet Ones has to be connected to The Resident. It, it's just create yeah. individual films. Have a bit of faith and just, just make a good monster movie. But... um. Anyway, yeah, this this film insert yeah. just wasn't. So, what is the plot to this then? What's the plot to the new version of the Mummy? The, the plot is that <laughs> uh, this this Egyptian daughter of a pharaoh was going to be a pharaoh. Then the pharaoh had a son, so she was not going to be a pharaoh. Kicked off a bit, tried to summon some god, didn't work. Got buried alive, then got dug up. In Iraq, not Egypt, apparently, which confused the hell out of me. Thousand, yeah, that's the well. I think that's kind of the point is that they took her so far away from Egypt. Yeah, yeah. But she was dug up in Iraq. No, yeah. Spirit possessed Tom Cruise um, in the modern day, and he, and then there's all these dark forces and things like kind of military who know how to deal with these kind of demon forces things, and that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Can't give you any more <laughs> than that about spoiling it. Spoiling it. Yeah. 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 That's a that's a good one. Just... No, I think that's the the summary is is kind of apt. But you know, you you've got the whole thing with Tom Cruise and um, because he's brought into this monsters world where these these things already exist. Although we don't really see them, we see like bits of them, right? So we see in Doctor Jekyll's. Uh, warehouse what would you call it how would you describe it lab shed shed his shed in dr jekyll's shed you see links to other things so you see like a skull of a vampire yeah uh, which is obviously if not dracula then evidence that dracula exists in this this shared universe even if we didn't already know that they've got a film titled dracula which is scheduled um we also see like the hand of uh, like this a swamp creature, which I, we presume is the creature from the Black Lagoon or some version of it. You know, it got uh, lots of tie-ins to other things going on. I think they were trying to do too much in that regard. If the, if it was just about Tom Cruise and the Mummy, um, it could have been quite a good action film. It would have been pretty generic, I guess. But you wouldn't you wouldn't have had this whole feeling running throughout of, okay, we know there's going to be other films. We know Tom Cruise is not going to be around for one film. 
this is going to be... There's no peril here because we know whatever happens, he's going to be back. He is your star. You've nabbed the guy that Marvel and DC haven't got for your studio. So I think that immediately eliminated a lot of the tension. Um, I also thought the performances were on the wrong side of Ropey. Uh, Russell yeah. Crowe. I mean, I usually love that guy. Uh, but what was going on? The Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde moment. He just basically goes a bit grey and puts on a Cockney accent. Because if you think about the original, like the sort of older movie or fictional interpretations of the character. He turns into a big monster type thing, right? Was he in Van Helsing, the film Van Helsing, where I think he turns into a big monster? Or League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Definitely or... in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Here, he doesn't even... Like, in the book, even, even if you go and read the book, in the book, he turns from Dr. Jekyll, who's, like, quite a well-spoken, well-to-do, but slightly mad scientist character, into a short... Dwarven, hairy, angry, horrible little man. So he does the opposite. Whereas in this, he just goes grey and puts on a Cockney accent and likes a bit of fighting. Well, Although it's well, confined well, to a room so. instead of around the world. Yeah. Uh, Annabelle Wallace. Wallace. I wasn't so keen on her either. I think it is one of these awkward moments as well where it's a bit like um, she's she is and isn't the love interest. You know, she's a female character, but she's she's not really an independent female character. Everything she does is hinged around what Tom Cruise does. So it doesn't really work. You can't have her as not the love interest, but also the love interest. It doesn't yeah. doesn't work. Um, and uh, uh, Sophia Botello, I will say, I thought was decent as them. Um, Prin- Princess Aminette, if that's the right term. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, what else can we say about it, really? Brendan Fraser's Mummy movie was far better. Do you think so? And that wasn't even great, but I enjoyed it more. Oh, God, I'm really struggling to think of anything at all to say. I mean, okay, CGI, we'll scrape the bottom of the barrel. CGI, any good to you? It's all right. Yeah, it looks all right. standard CGI, wasn't it? Well, not groundbreaking. It's not groundbreaking. It's kind of at the level that we expect it to be now. Yeah. Got nothing else to say. Writing was kind of adequate. Plot Genuinely was fine. Got nothing else to say. I'll be quite happy to leave it there and move on. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to. I'm, I'm apologising to the people listening because if you listen to hear a review of the Mummy, I just haven't got anything else. I've got nothing. Mm. Got absolutely nothing of like. It's not horrendous. It's not a terrible film. I think you can spend, you know, time in the cinema and be more bored watching something than you will be by this. The length of it is about right for the kind of film it is. It's about, it's, it's under two hours. I think it came in at about one hour 45. I mean, at least it's mercifully short. Yeah. You know, most films these days go two and a half or, you know, a film like this, you would expect to be at least two hours, 10 minutes, but, but it's not. Score? What do you think of the score? Just standard. Standard score. Wasn't exemplary, was just no, kind of... just exactly what you'd expect from that kind of film, really. Yeah. The, I mean, the only the only thing that I liked whilst watching the film is because I thought the setting was good. That I liked the fact that it was in England. I liked the stuff with... Like, if they'd have built up more around this whole, um, you know, knights uh, who... Like, it starts off with the knights are the ones that find a, the jewel and the dagger that is used to reincarnate the set the 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 god of death right if there was a bit more time spent on that at the beginning of the film that would have been preferable to uh, a lot of what else goes on in the story i would yeah. have i would have you know this whole mythology could have really been built up with those guys and the whole idea that they find this underground cavern that's full of all these um knights that have been hidden away for like 800 900 years Kind of cool idea. There's a lot there, you know. Um, but it's kind of like brought up as a plot device to then explain why Tom Cruise is in the desert. <laughs> like, why is he looking for artifacts in this particular place? Yeah. Oh, it's because the the knights. So, uh, Zali, can we have a bit more? Can we know a little bit about who they were? 
can I see them doing something? You know, because I don't know if you remember, there was a story, I think last year, a new story where there was a little cave that was found in, oh, I'm probably getting the place wrong. I think it was somewhere around Cheltenham, somewhere like that. Yeah. Uh, which is underneath a farmer's field. And it was like an old, like, devil-worshipping thing. They found, like, shrines and stuff. Did you hear about this? No. It's a real thing. Like, there was under, this farmer had on his land, he had, like, a little cave that he, he discovered, which he thought was, like, a little rabbit run thing and it turns out actually underneath is where all these satanic rituals took place like people used to gather from around the local that is a fucking awesome thing to find in a field and that could have had a story made out of it you could have made a film out of that yeah this like it could have had that folky horror vibe to it and instead sacrificed folk horror to have generic blockbuster instead yeah it just lacked a lot of character that was there. They had the little, they had the little threads that they could have just woven into something, uh, and instead just decided to put Tom Cruise on a plane. For that reason, I think if I was to give it a rating, it would be about a four. It's adequate. It's fine. It's just, I think. Well, I think you said bleh. You made the noise bleh. Mm. That's it, isn't it? Yeah. That's just it. Um. So that was the mummy. On to some recommendations now for the week ahead. I'm going to play quite easy and go with uh, Young Offenders, which I saw on Netflix, which I spoke about earlier. Um, Owen? I'm going to recommend a film called End of Watch, which we reviewed uh, in our first year of podcasting. Yeah. Um, it's on Channel 4, 10 past 11 on Sunday. It stars uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Penner. It's kind of a police thriller. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I always think, like, I wrote a review earlier in the year for an indie film, uh, which was a fame footage movie. And I sort of said that, you know, fame footage has had some bigger budget productions. And I, I kind of feel like End of Watch is, in a way, uh, a fame footage film. Because it uses a lot of handheld cam footage. It's all CCTV. It's dash cams from the front of the police cars and inside the police cars. It does have like the standard um, camera system going on, but it, a, a lot of it, or I would say 95% of it, is shot in a kind of faint footage way. And it's unusual to see a film like this. Yeah. That's done in, some, in a slightly gimmicky fashion. But I think it works kind of well. Very good film. Yeah, it's quite, um, quite entertaining. So that's all for this week's Fail Critics podcast. Uh, next week, me and Owen will be back with... With uh, Paul Field. And we'll be reviewing Gifted. So, yeah, come and join us for that. Also, we have regular uh, character unlocks going up all over this week with the uh, video game E3 festival happening. We also have a new Underground Night with Paul Field and James Mullinger uh, talking all things Britflix and stuff. So funny. When those guys are together, you know, it, they should do that more often. We should have a petition to get them to do it more because I know that they get, uh, it's kind of um, schedule conflicts and stuff with um, Mullinger. He's either touring or doing shows or... Being a professional famous person. Being a professional famous person, yeah. I think he's got a... He's in a film that's coming out, an indie zombie film where he plays a zombie, which will be quite funny. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we've yeah. got all that up now. And um, obviously, thank you for listening and join us again next week. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes with contributions from different guests every week with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com from the track The Bandit remixed by James Yule who you can find at jamesyule.com You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Failed Critics on iTunes and all good podcast apps or you can check us out at failedcritics.com If you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or a review and why not check out our sister podcasts Character Unlock and Field and Mullinger's Underground Nights from the failed media network of podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.